Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Peter Levine, who is a career professional staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee before joining the Pentagon leadership as Deputy Chief Management Officer, and he's now a senior researcher at the Institute for Defense Analyses. He has a new book out, and that's what we're here to talk about today, Defense Management Reform, How to Make the Pentagon Work Better and Cost Less. Peter, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thank you for having me on the show, and I appreciate your uh, your interest in talking about the book. Yeah, definitely. It's a great book, and it breaks down into three main segments. The first is kind of workforce reform, and then acquisition reform since the 1980s, and then the third section is kind of auditability of the Department of Defense. But I want to start here with the framing premise here that you've kind of brought up in a couple places why does the Department of Defense look a little bit more like an economy than a business? I think that people who look at reform issues, whether it's personnel reform or acquisition reform or audit reform, tend not to realize how complex of a problem it is. And that's because they don't recognize how complex of an institution the Department of Defense is. In the personnel arena, the department employs everybody from nurses to nuclear physicists to wrench turners and ditch diggers. I mean, the array of different different types of people that the department employs is incredible. In the acquisition system, buy everything from toilet paper and, and wrenches to consultation services, again, with nuclear physicists or buying nuclear aircraft carriers. I mean, the, the range of things you buy is incredible. But the reason I see it more as an economy than a business is because the department is made up of any number of, of relatively independent entities, not only the military services, but the defense agencies and field activities. And also within the services, you have relatively independent commands and organizations there. These independent organizations are not only independent in the sense that uh, a subsidiary of a corporation would be, but they also do incredible amounts of business with each other. They have business transactions that go backward and forward. And so when you go and look at it, you're looking more at more like a community or city. You're looking at an organization that serves food to its employees, provides housing to its employees, that buys transportation from itself, buys communication services by itself, ships goods on its own transportation network, buys and sells supplies to itself and, and, and ships supplies from one entity to another with tracking with, with trying to track where it goes and, and what the financial transactions are. So this is it's an entire network of, of economic transactions. And that's why I say it's more like an economy than just 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 a uh, than, than a business, than a single business. So, yeah, that was uh, on the audit front there. That was something a little bit new for me. I hadn't really read too much of the history. I actually, when I was reading some of the really old stuff from the Hoover Commission in 1955, the second Hoover Commission, they were actually talking about just that. We need to get the Pentagon audible. When is this going to happen? And, you know, so it's it's been going on for a really long time. And you really brought out a lot of new information for me on the audit front. And we've definitely been seeing a renewed interest in auditing the Pentagon in the past couple of years. And you call this the strategy that's been going on a little bit, the auditing its way into auditability strategy. So can you just talk a little bit about what's the goals of the Pentagon audit and why it's been so elusive to achieve? First, what auditing your way to auditability means is you conduct an audit, find out what the problems are, fix the problems, and then you can conduct another audit and hopefully pass. And so we have people who have been in business in the private sector and government in, in smaller government entities who say, well, this has worked elsewhere. Why can't the Pentagon just do this? And I think one of the values that this book provides is it gives the perspective of why the Pentagon can't do it, because it shows you that this is not something which is, which we hit 2015 and we suddenly had, had this idea, let's audit our way to auditability. We've actually been doing audits back over a period of decades now. We tried to audit our way into auditability in the 1990s, and we did complete Pentagon audits. We've done, we're, we're proud of having done them in 2017, 18, 19, but we actually did them in 1998, 1999, and 2000, and we failed them so badly that Congress finally told the Department of Defense, don't bother, come back to me when you've got your systems in place and they're good enough and strong enough that you can do it. So there's, there's a fundamental problem 
not only with the complexity of the Pentagon, but also with the financial systems and the complexity of the financial systems, that, that this is just a very, very difficult thing to do. The, the other thing that you need to think about is exactly what you raised, which is why are you trying to get to auditability? Because in the private sector, a financial statement is used to place a value on the business, and placing a value on the business is important for your investors. The Department of Defense doesn't have investors. Whether the Department of Defense is worth $1.5 trillion or $2 trillion really isn't important. The question is the quality of the, of the defense that, they, that it can provide, the leverage it can provide to achieve a national security objectives. And whether you value an asset at, at one value or another hardly matters to that. The other thing that a, that a financial statement does in the private sector is it shows profit and loss. And again, that's something that helps, helps you manage your business. But you assess profit and loss by comparing purchase price to sales price, basically. How much you paid to get something versus how much you sell it for. Well, we're not going to be selling any of the defense assets. So we don't actually have a sales price to compare things to. What we have is a military value. So the things that you get from a financial statement are very important for many entities. It's not as clear that they have the same importance for the Department of Defense. That doesn't mean it's not important for the department to keep good books. But the focus of those books shouldn't necessarily be an auditable financial statement. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a really important part. You know, it seems like there's these two camps for me that there's like one that's at, that looks at the audit issue and says, you know, this is a huge symbol of importance for accountability. You know, there's probably lots of fraud or waste going on. And this, if we get this done, then we'll be able to dramatically lower costs, you know, save billions and, and stop a lot of problems. And then the other camp kind of says, I think fraud and corruption and like overpayments that were happening potentially in the 80s. Um, that's not really happening so much anymore. We're already kind of getting the financial information that we need to make the decisions we need. So the audit issue isn't really going to like lower defense program costs by a lot. It's not going to have too much of an impact there. It's overblown in some respects. Do you see there's these kind of two camps? Like, how do you see that? Yeah. So um, first of all, the Pentagon's financial systems and its information systems in general, it's data, it's data the side of the, of the Department of Defense. I always used to say, there's one rule about data in the Department of Defense, it's all bad. Um, so I don't want to underestimate the problems with DOD's financial systems or with its other business systems. They're much better now than they were in the 1990s, but they're still really bad and still need a lot of improvement. And I think that auditability has been used as a surrogate for that to drive reforms and, and is probably responsible for some, for some of the reforms that have made the system better today than it was 30 years ago. But you also have to think about whether you're driving the right kinds of reforms and you're driving the right kind of action. Because when you're leveraging tens of billions of dollars, which is what we've been spending on the auditability effort, you really want to make sure you're spending in that, that in a way that you get the most bang for your buck. And we spent too many dollars pursuing audit trails and too many dollars trying to value major pieces of military equipment, things that don't really provide an, a value to the department, and too much money on our financial systems while we've let so many of our other business systems that are equal, at least as important, like our acquisition data systems and our personnel systems, atrophy. So you have to think not only about the need to invest money in business systems, but how are you going to invest that money and how can you best leverage it to get good quality business decisions for the Department of Defense? The real issue you're trying to pursue here is not auditability. It's how do we get better business decisions? Yeah. And your book, I would, again, recommend to our audience to go pick up the book because you go into some of the systems like GFEBs and DEEMS and kind of like how that all came around. Um, so I think we'll leave that part there and we'll move on to some of the other parts of the book. The second part of the book was really interesting for me. It's on, you know, the stages of acquisition reform and what's gone before and where we might go next. So can you just kind of like give our audience a little introduction into, you know, what were those stages of acquisition reform since the 1980s? And then, you know, how would you kind of compare what was going on with Goldwater Nichols back in the 80s versus, you know, the 2015 to 2020 types of reforms that are going on now. So I think this is this is another case where where it's important to learn from the past and not and not just take the perspective of today. And and we jump into things we jump into things without looking backwards and we sometimes repeat the same mistakes. And I think we're we're somewhat at risk of that and I, and, and I'll try to get back to that, but I want to start with your question about the phases of acquisition reform. Up until about 1980, acquisition was basically managed from the Pentagon within the Pentagon. Congress was barely an observer. 
In the 1980s, when we had a series of, of acquisition scandals, starting with alleged fraud, waste and abuse, it was called, but, but fraud with, with overhead charges, uh, people charging, I remember kennel fees was, was one for, for, for the president of a company's dog, you know, excess travel expenses, yachts club memberships, things like that. Not big dollars, but potentially abusive. And we had what were called the spare parts scandals with, you know, the the, uh, the toilet seat that was $465 and the hammer that was $600 and that kind of thing. Those drove outrage in the public and in the Congress, which led to Congress asserting itself in a way that it had never really done before in the acquisition arena. And so we went through a period in the 1980s of congressionally driven acquisition reform, which had some, some early successes with the establishment of the Director of Operational Test Evaluation, so Independent Test and Evaluation, with the Competition and Contracting Act, but then sort of lost itself in chasing what I would characterize as small issues and, and sending the, the attention of the acquisition system in the wrong direction, understanding that you have, always have a problem with bandwidth. So 1980s, you had congressionally driven acquisition reform. Then in, in 1986, you had the Packard Commission, which led to the executive branch essentially reasserting control over acquisition. So you have two phases then of executive branch-led acquisition reform, first with the Packard Commission, which established the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and a more centralized acquisition system trying to get cost and schedule and performance under control for major weapon systems. And then with the reversal of that, still with executive branch-led reform, but much more of a devolution of authority. We're going to trust contractors. We're going to deregulate the system. So you have the late 80s, early 90s, Strong centralization, followed by most of the 90s and, and early in the in the Bush administration, you have deregulation, decentralization. Then you have another series. Then you have another series of, of problems that led to congressional attention with major cost overruns. It started with the tanker lease, but you also had the Joint Strike Fighter. You had the littoral combat ship. You had the Future Combat System. A series of programs that seemed to go very far awry and huge cost overruns which led to Congress reasserting its, itself. Interestingly, Congress has gone through the same evolution as the executive branch did. So we had an executive branch period of centralization followed by executive branch deregulation. Now we've had congressional centralization followed by congressional deregulation, but the same kind of policies we're following. So we had it with the Packard Commission, we had the assertion of the Undersecretary for Acquisition trying to get programs off on the right foot at the start by a strong milestone process. With WISARA, we had the same kind of assertion, but coming from Congress, you need to do this, you need to have a strong center, you need to control milestone process so you get programs off on the right foot. You had the deregulation in, in the 90s, and you have the deregulation now. So you can see some, some patterns, and you can look to the past, even though one is executive branch driven and one is more congressionally driven, you could look to the past and see what the results were. And that's one reason why it's important to learn from history, because the results of the deregulation we had in the 90s were wonderful for purchase of, of commercial products, a very successful, very important, but were a terrible failure for the deregulation of major defense acquisition programs. And so we ought to at least be aware of that and be aware of the risk that we will repeat that experience. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways we could learn from it and perhaps deregulate without having that adverse experience. But if we're not aware that we've been through this before and created huge problems, then there's a much greater likelihood we'll repeat those problems. You were just bringing out there, there's a lot that went into acquisition reform in the past, right? So if it sounds easy, you said this, it's already been tried, right? And Packard, he was a really smart guy, right? So, and he, he put a couple of waves of effort into the Department of Defense. So there's not going to be any easy fixes. But there was this 2015 Defense uh, Business Board study that caught my attention and you kind of like opened the book with it. And they were basically recommending these reforms, boasting $125 billion in savings a year for the Pentagon. And then basically they were ignored and it led to this Washington Post article about why are they squashing this, uh, these savings and all that. So can you just talk a little bit, you know, what was that episode? And then what does it kind of show about, you know, public understanding of acquisition reform and what are the difficulties? Well, it was a great article for the Washington Post to write because they could say, hey, you know, if you just did this, you could have saved $125 billion. Obviously, you didn't want to save money. When you look at the report, you realize that the Defense Business Board study did not recommend reforms. It recommended saving $125 billion. It said, here's how much your infrastructure costs you. If you save 9% of that, that'll be $125 billion. It didn't really say how to go about doing that other than you can stop hiring people and you can cut the amount you're spending. 
that's great, but what am I going to stop doing if I stop hiring people? And if I don't stop doing something or I don't change the way I'm doing things, then how am I going to save the money? I can stop spending money. I could, I could cut the defense budget in half tomorrow, but I'm going to have half as much, presumably. If I cut it 9%, I'll have 9% less. What am I going to do differently or do less of? And, and the board never really said that. It had a few fairly vague ideas, but they were generally ideas that had already been tried, like consolidating your service contracts and doing spend analyses and things like that, which we'd already been doing for 10 or 15 years before the DBB came forward. Um, so I use that as an example in the book of how you need to, if you, you want to achieve savings, you have to really do the hard work of looking at programs, making choices. You can do it the way the secretary is right now, Secretary Esper, which is going through budgets on a line-by-line -line basis and, and making priority decisions. I'm just not going to spend money on this anymore, which is one way to do it. Or you could do it by changing your processes and saying, this process costs too much because I go through too many steps and I don't need to do that. I can streamline the process and get, and, and, and get it down and save money that way. A lot of the time you have to do it by investing. So investing in better business systems that will give you better information so you can make better decisions, that could do it too, but then you have to spend money up front to do it. So the point of, of focusing on that DBB study was it's hard work. There, there's no magic bullet that's going to save you $125 billion and, and not cost you anything. Uh, that's definitely the right way to think about it. You know, when I think about acquisition reform, I, I think about it kind of like in those three buckets. You outlined you can either look at the requirements, go into the budget, make trade-offs. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of people already doing this. It's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of inside military knowledge to kind of really know what are the correct requirements, how to make those trade-offs, what is a good decision or not. And then you have the whole optimization type approach. How can I build better business systems? How do I create a better acquisition process and the like? And again, as we've just been discussing, there's been a lot of smart people putting a lot of effort into this for decades. So there's not going to be an easy answer on one of those two fronts. And then the third one just seems like, well, you could just give them a budget ceiling. Like, just we're just going to cut you, and you're just going to have to make do within that and re-optimize your programs or whatever you have to do. But that's kind of a blunt instrument. There's not an easy way about this. But you've written on a few places, and there was a Roar in the Rocks article about like 10 principles for good acquisition reform. So can you just give us a little bit of what are your principles for good acquisition reform? Well, I won't give you all 10 of them, but I'm starting at the beginning, the first thing to do, and, and I think this is what the book tries to help do, is to understand what you've got before you go and try to try to reform it. Understand what has been before. And so when you look at a system that you think is broken, it's important to understand it fully and understand not only what's not working, but also what is working about it. Because if you don't understand what is working, then you might break that when you're trying to break apart the things that, that are not functioning. Number one, before anything, is understand what is working as well as what isn't working. Then you want to get to the root cause. Once you've decided what isn't working, you want to get to the root causes of what, what isn't working. So you don't want to attack the surface. You want to understand what's driving them. So if you've got uh, cost overruns and prices that are going way up, it's great to, to say, okay, well, I'll cut budgets or I'll do the Nunn-McCurdy statute does and say, basically, if, if your costs go up, then I'm going to penalize you in some way. But that's not getting at root cause. That's, that's addressing a symptom. If you want to get root cause, you have to ask, well, why are the costs going up and what, what is the problem? And so one thing, that's one thing that we did in Wasara, and that's one thing that Congress did back in Goldwater-Nichols was, look, why do we have these cost overruns? What's the driver? So we came back to, it seems to be problem is in the inception of the program where we make these over-optimistic assumptions and that there is major pressures in the system to do that. There are major incentives to be optimistic. And so you have to address that optimism up front. That, that's why we created the independent cost estimates a few decades ago and why we made that a, a major emphasis in, in Wasara, for example. So once you've identified the root causes, you want to have, to my light, targeted approaches you want it so that you can attack the part that is broken without breaking down the things that are working well. It also helps you with bandwidth. I mean, you have to understand that as a leader in the Department of Defense, you have only so much bandwidth. So these congressional legislation, the uh, the NDAs, which come out with, with 40 provisions, 50 provisions, 80 provisions, 100 provisions dealing with acquisition reform, we need to recognize that that's a problem in itself. Those 80 to 100 provisions are not going to all get implemented and get implemented effectively because the department simply doesn't have the bandwidth to, for that much change at the same time. We had the problem with the uh, split of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics into two separate undersecretaries a few years ago. I mean, whether you think that's good, that was good or bad, it basically shut down the office for a couple of years where they dealt with the reorganization and 
uh, that absorbed their bandwidth. And so other things came to a stop. So if you wanted to reform in other ways, you weren't getting there because the organizational change was taking so much bandwidth. Those are a few, those are a few things. There are more of them in the book and more, as you said, in the 10, in the 10 lessons, the 10, the 10 rules for, for reform. Yeah. You said that with SARA, the Weapon Systems Acquisition Reform Act, I believe that was 2009, and then Better Buying Power, which kind of followed up on that from Ashton Carter a couple of years later, you call them very successful. And it seems that, well, a couple of years after that, then we got into this whole new round of acquisition reform that seemed to be kind of like you were describing earlier, another swing of the pendulum back towards, well, let's deregulate, let's do more commercial practices, rapid prototyping and all of that. So can you just describe, you know, how successful was Wasara and BBP and then why the new round of reform? What was the call for that? So Wasara and BBP were very successful on their own terms. They appear to have driven down costs in, in a way that previous reforms were unable to do. When you look at the numbers coming out of the acquisition system, they look much better for programs that were initiated from 2008 or so on. Instead of skyrocketing, costs were coming down. Um, on, on some programs. And on average, they were basically coming in at estimate, which had never happened before in the previous 30 years of, of acquisition history. So on their own terms, designed to get better disciplined programs that were, were going to run on schedule and run on cost and, and drive costs down, they were about as successful as we've been. There were two critiques of this, one of which I think of as being unfair and one of which is fair. The unfair one was people looked at the same programs that had driven Congress to enact SAR in the first place, things like FCS and LCS, and said, these are horrible, ter- terrible programs. They're going badly, so we need new reform without recognizing those were pre-WSAR programs and, in fact, ones that had led to the enactment of WSAR in the first place. That was an unfair criticism. There was a fair criticism, too, though, because WSAR, I said, was successful on its own terms, but... That's not the only framework in which you can view the acquisition system. Controlling costs is not the only objective. And so the concern was, yeah, we're controlling costs, but we're not being innovative. That's a legitimate concern. Wasara was not designed to encourage innovation. Now, I would say you could encourage more innovation without throwing out the framework of Wasara, but it's a legitimate criticism. It's a different objective. And when you're pursuing a different objective, you might need different tools. To my view, what you need to do is to balance the two tools so that you can be much more experimental in the early phases of a program in your research and your development, but still be disciplined when you get to a multi-billion dollar production program where I think you really need, the history shows us, you need to be disciplined to get good results. So where do you come down on where that split is? I think there's been kind of like this long debate, you know, even back towards the 50s where you had Armin Alchin basically arguing, well, you don't really want to start that rigorous milestone, you know, looking at what the real costs are going to be and doing an optimization or systems analysis until production. Where then you had, you know, Charles Hitch, who kind of was one of the founders of the PBBS system. He was kind of pushing that closer to, I think, where it is a little bit today, you know, right before prototyping, you really start that off. Um, I think the department has kind of been somewhere in the middle where they, they kind of put those controls on most of the programs of records start around milestone B at the start of full-scale development or engineering and manufacturing design. But where do you kind of fall on, you know, where's that right split? Where does it start? Does it depend? I think it's unrealistic to think that you're going to be that disciplined before you get to milestone B. And then there's a reason why we develop our cost, our official cost and program estimates at that point, because that's when we're far enough along that we can, that we can see the program well enough and trying to understand the program and locking it in before you get to that stage, I think is a mistake. So if you go pre milestone B and say, Hey, I have a lot more room for experimentation here. I don't even have to be at a major program before milestone B. I could be trying five, six, seven different things. I could be evolutionary. I could be revolutionary. I can try try things that don't work. To me, you do that before milestone B. Once you hit milestone B, you don't want to be doing that anymore because trying something that doesn't work after milestone B when you're already in a major program and you're already pushing toward production, you already have this huge workforce centered on the program is incredibly expensive and it's incredibly destructive and ends up pushing the schedule out rather than progressing it. So the Air Force acquisition executive, Will Roper, he's been someone that's been talking a lot about changing the way that you know, we kind of approach acquisition and do programs. And he said something for advanced battle management system that was really interesting, and I'd like you to react to it. He said, quote, the thing we're going to do is have to show that we can deconstruct a major effort like this, not run it like a major defense acquisition program. 
I want 10 to 15% solutions that allow us to learn faster. ABMS won't deliver, it will emerge. So that seems pretty unusual and it kind of gets back to what's the baseline, when do you set a technical baseline, the cost estimate and all that kind of stuff. So what do you, what do you think about uh, what Will Roper said there about ABMS? Well, we've been talking about evolutionary acquisition now for probably 30 or 40 years. It's, it's an important principle and one one which needs to be a part of the, the acquisition system. And to the extent that that's what he's talking about, I don't see any reason to disagree with him. So you can put a partial capability out if you can figure out how to field it and not prejudice the ability then to add additional additional mods and additional improvements as you go on. That can work particularly in the software arena. It can work in, in areas where you have a product that is susceptible to that. But if you're going to build, if he's going to talk about the next generation bomber, he's got to have an aircraft that can fly and he's got to have it designed well enough that it can, that, that you can mod it and you can, you can add things to it. So you might be able to, you can upgrade the software. I mean, we, how many upgrades have we been through on the B-52? But we had a B-52 complete design when we built it. And you're going to want the same thing with, with the next generation bomber. You're going to want a complete design. You can't just design one wing at a time on an aircraft. So it depends on what you're building. It reminds me of Brent Fliveberg. I don't know if you've read. He's a Danish uh, scholar at Oxford who talks about mega projects. And he's one of the things he always says is like, you can only break things down to the, to a certain degree. And that kind of depends on what you're doing. For some things like a bridge, you know, like you can't really modularize like when you're doing a huge suspension bridge like the Golden Gate or something like that. So you can't always just break things down. But I agree that software probably lends itself a lot better for that. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to be evolutionary and revolutionary. We have to be able to experiment. And at the same time, we have to be able to have the discipline to build things that are complex and need to have discipline to build them. We have to be able to do multiple different kinds of things to take multiple different approaches. And a concern that I have is when I hear senior acquisition officials say, well, this worked for this and therefore got to do this for everything. You know, the MRAPs is a great example. People say, well, MRAPs worked and it only worked because it had the Secretary of Defense's attention, but we are able to do this incredibly fast. And why can't we do that for everything? We need an acquisition system that will deal with everything the way it dealt with MRAPs. Well, we're throwing MRAPs away because it turns out that they're not sustainable. We had MRAPs that didn't work along with MRAPs that did work. They don't fit into the logistics system. They don't fit into the communication system, the support systems. Um, There are all sorts of problems with the MRAPs that the acquisition system, if it had worked its normal course, would have worked out but didn't have the opportunity to do that. It was important that we do that. We did a $30 billion program because we had an immediate problem that was a wartime problem that we had to address. But you can't have every problem be a problem that is willing to throw, you're willing to throw away $30 billion on because you don't have an unlimited quantity of $30 billion to throw away on it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of some of the impetus behind the new adaptive uh, acquisition framework that's coming out that now you have, I think, like six or seven different swim lanes for different. So that would be the MRAP would be a UONS or an urgent needs capability. But most things won't be on that super rapid requirements and, and procurement process. One of the last things I did before I left Capitol Hill was to write, help write the uh, provision on uh, middle tier of acquisition. So I believe in the swim lanes. I think that, that having different alternatives is, is important. I think that tools like other transactions are important, but you need to recognize that they have a place and that not only are they important tools, but it's important that they be used in the manner in which they're intended and used in an appropriate way because they can be abused if we don't understand where the purpose are and where they fit into the system. On the middle tier of acquisition, I just want to get your opinion real quick on whether this is a good use or an abuse of the middle tier. So for one, um, major systems acquisitions, kind of like the next generation OPIR, but then two, Ellen Lord said something interesting. She was advocating the prototyping phase actually be used kind of to like do components and subsystems, rapid prototyping, and then that would kind of feed into larger programs later, potentially. Uh, So what do you think about those two? So I'm not going to talk about any specific acquisition decision in the department, but I do generally agree that OTAs are particularly useful in the early phase of acquisition. They're particularly useful for rapid development. They're particularly useful for, for prototyping. And they may be better applied to subsystems than full systems. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't ever have a use, a potential use for a full system. I would just say if it's an MDAP, it's probably not going to be appropriate for an OTA. Um, and, and what about the middle tier? I guess like you can use them in conjunction or differently. So, but... so when, when the middle tier was written, the idea was it was going to be a middle tier, which meant right. between something and something else. So at the low end, you have commercial spare parts and things like that. At the high end, you have MDAPs and middle tier was going to be something in between. So when you start using middle tier for MDAPs, the question of, well, is it really a middle tier anymore? What was it? it sort of almost defies the name of it, not, let alone the definition. But I think that it's not just a matter of semantics. I think that when you get to, as I said, spending billions of dollars on something, you need then the discipline to do it right. The thing about either OTAs or middle tier is it doesn't make any of the policy issues go away. We have all these issues that are addressed in great detail in the FAR and people look, like to hate the FAR uh, because it's so complex, but it, it's complex because you have so many issues to, that you need to consider. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal with product quality? How am I going to deal with intellectual property? How am I going to deal with payments? How am I going to deal with overhead costs? All these different issues you need to figure out that are properly contract issues where the FAR gives guidance, what no TA says is you don't have to follow that guidance, but that doesn't mean you don't have to answer the question. And so it can actually be much harder to enter an OTA, to figure out an OTA, because if you're not going to accept the guidance and you're going to do something different, then you have to start over and figure out, well, what am I going to do different and why am I going to do different and how is how am I going to make it work? Yeah, I talked with uh, Richard Dunn on that and he said exactly the same thing, right? Like if you're doing an OTA, the way you have to do it is you have to start fresh from basically a clean sheet of paper. I think that kind of goes back to workforce training and, and bandwidth. And we've seen the acquisition workforce kind of whittled down over time. That's one of the things that some people want to save money on, but that can lead to real problems. I would disagree with, with, with Rick Dunn, and I've been disagreeing with him on OTAs for years. But the place I would disagree with him is that you want to start with a clean sheet of paper. Because if you start with a clean sheet of paper, that means I'm going to have to figure out from scratch how I do everything. And you might want to say, okay, what are the things that are giving me problems? The things that aren't giving me problems, I could just go with those because they're not giving me problems. What are the things that are giving me problems? Let me do those differently rather than trying to reinvent the universe from scratch, which we try to do too often. Yeah, I think there's there's often a bias towards something like what what is very simple and very elegant and what we replace. But most of the time, especially with something as complex as what we're dealing with, there has to be at least enough complexity within the system to handle what is actually you're you're doing. If you're too simple and too elegant, you may find out that you, you're simple and elegant because you failed to address important issues. And then you end up dealing with them later in, in audits or in, in IG investigations or in litigation or someplace like that. So failing to answer questions because you're being simple and elegant might not be the best thing. So, you know, one of the most important things for me that I don't think gets enough attention in acquisition reform is the planning, programming, budgeting, execution system. And you said in a recent article, quote, the most important step that the next secretary could take is to strengthen the joint mission-focused planning, programming, and budgeting process. And then you, you referenced a nice Center for New American Security article from Susanna Bloom and her colleague. So can you just talk a little bit about what is the PBBS system, and then what do you think should go on there? Okay. So let me first, first let me take this opportunity, since you mentioned Susanna, to put in a plug for Susanna Bloom, because she knows far more about the PPBE process than I ever will, and I think her article is an excellent one. But basically, the PPBE process is a top-down approach to taking strategy and figuring out what do I need to meet that strategy. So you start with a national security strategy, you go to a national defense strategy. From the national defense strategy, you meet your, your force needs and your, your system needs, and you use that to, to design your force, to, to, design, to design what you're going to buy. And then you develop a program from there, and from the program, you develop a budget. Okay, that's the concept. And this administration has rightly taken pride in the fact that it developed a new national security strategy and a new national defense strategy. It's not always clear that, that they believe in their own strategies, but the documents themselves are very clear documents or strong documents. The problem I see is that we have stuck with a bottoms-up approach to actually building the budget and building the POM. So we have this national security strategy, we have this national defense strategy, then we say to the services, go build a POM and bring me a POM. And so what does the service do? They, they go down to all their stovepipes and say, tell me what you need, and they build up what they need, and then that comes up to, to, to OSD, and OSD is in a position of tinkering at the edges. So 
how do we link the national defense strategy to what's actually in the program? We do it sort of a self-justifying mechanism. We look at what's in a budget and we match that to our defense objectives. And we say, I, I can find these things that match this, these things that match this. Well, I could do that with anybody. I could take our national defense strategy and I could take a budget that was, uh, that was completely different, that was formed by a different set of different set of services, and I could cherry pick it and find things that match the national defense strategy. The idea of the PPBS system is that you don't work that way. You start with the objective and you prioritize and you figure out what you most need to meet those priorities. So you're, you have to be going down rather than up. Now, there's always going to be a balance because you're never going to have a completely clean sheet with the Department of Defense. You're never going to be able to start from scratch. But I think it's important to have some of that top-down strategy and some, at least more, of that top-down approach so that you can shape the defense program rather than letting the defense program shape you. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the, that kind of bottom-up where the services kind of create their own program packages and then submit that through the palm, that seems to be a legacy of Melvin Laird and David Packer's years when they kind of took the PBBS from McNamara and said, okay, it's going to be participatory management because what came before that was you had McNamara and his whiz kids in the Office of Systems Analysis with Alan Enthoven. And a lot of people complained, right? Like, well, you have this office of 200 people, and now they're basically the entire defense planners for the whole system from the top down. They give us this tentative force guidance, and they kind of tell us what they're expecting to see. You know, how, how do you see that as, like, different than just kind of going back to a 60s-era model of what the PPBS is? There's a, there's a tension between the two, and I frankly think that both is necessary. As I said, we're never going to go completely top down or probably never go as top down as McNamara did again, although you never know. But I think we've gone too far in the other direction now, and it's 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 too much allowing the bottom-up approach because it does put you put you into your stovepipes. And I know that OSD has been in disfavor, but there's a reason why we have a Secretary of Defense, and there's a reason why we have an Office of the Secretary of Defense, which is that we have joint needs and that there really are trade-offs between what the different services do. So I, I wouldn't say that, that I would want to disempower the services. I think this, the services are far too important to what we do. But I would think about some things that I think that, uh, and I read Susanna's article a while back, but I think that, that taking carving some of the money out and saying, okay, services, you're going to build a POM, but you're going to build a POM, which is only going to take 90% of the budget that you're getting, because the other 10% I'm planning for you. And that way, I'm going to make sure up front that the priorities that are the cross-service priorities that, are, that really meet the national defense, those get funded first, not last. So rather than have the service come up to OSD and have OSD have to carve out somehow a nickel and a dime there to try to fund a few priorities, start by saying, no, these are the most important things. I'm going to fund these. Now tell me how you're going to do the rest. I like that idea, actually, of kind of splitting the pie a little and then kind of allowing for, you know, the different interests to have their trade-offs. I heard something interesting. It, it was a proposal for basically researchers and how they get funded. And I want to get your kind of quick view on this. Basically, the idea was for all the researchers, they have to give away like some certain percentage, like 20 or 50 percent of their funding to other researchers. And so the, the natural inclination is that the researchers themselves will be more interested in each other's activities and then they would move funding over to the things that they think are important that help work the network or the chain or the jointness of their efforts in the most way possible. Do you think there there could ever be like an interesting way where programs would mipper their money, like a five, 10% of their money over to, to different things that they think would help enable their capabilities? It's hard because DOD is such a, the, the way funding works in DOD is so strange in the first place because um, a program doesn't actually control all of its own funding even, you know, because you get the funding, which is your funding in the program office may be all going to the contractor, but in order for your project to work and you got to have these other offices funded and that money doesn't come to you and you don't control it. So, there might be some room for that at the margins. I think it's an interesting idea. I also think there's some room for the idea of this the bishop's fund where they, the head of an activity gets to, to hold back a little bit of money so he can put it where or she can put it in, uh, to the most important priorities rather than just having the stovepipes handle it. So I think that some experimentation in that area is appropriate. The question is how far in the area of experimentation the appropriators will, will allow the department to get. That's always going to be a question. When we talk about uh, some of the delegation of authority versus kind of like the top-down approach versus the bottom-up, we're kind of in this era right now where a lot of attention is back on the bottom-up. And we've heard a lot of statements, for example, from uh, General Mark Milley, and he says something like, 
you know, quote, empower the PEOs, the program executive offices, empower the service chiefs, cut us loose and see what happens. If we fail, fire us. So you, you have a whole section on workforce reform and civil reform. So can you just, you know, talk about like, what do you think when you hear statements like that? Empower the PEOs, empower the service chiefs, fire us if not. So first of all, I loved General Milley. Um, I, I had the privilege of working with him when I was in the department, got to sit next to him in a number of the secretary's meetings. And I, thought, I think he's a very intelligent, thoughtful guy. I also think he's not an acquisition professional. And this is not an area of his expertise. And I'm concerned about the idea that you turn over acquisition to people who are not in their area of, of expertise. Um, and I, I understand the attractiveness of the argument, empower us, and if we fail, just fire us. The problem is in the acquisition system that the failure usually is not visible for about five or six years, which means that we can empower somebody and they'll be long gone before it gets time to fire somebody. And this was, you know, Senator McCain was always asking, well, who's accountable for this? Who can I fire? Who are you? Who have you fired? He never, I don't think he ever got the best answer, which is the guy you needed to fire was in office 10 years ago. He's long gone. None of the people now are responsible for the decision that put us in this position. So that that's the problem I have with General Milley's argument is, first, I'm not sure that they're the right people to empower. But second, if they do get it wrong, it's their successors, not them, who will be paying the price. Yeah, that's so true, because it seems like, you know, even it seems like some of the and a lot of the services, the program managers are actually moving, you know, three to four to even five years in some cases on their duties. But it's still we have these really long programs and they're kind of like outside of human scales. And so the accountability, who do you push the button on? Well, the current program manager is kind of executing a plan and a program budget from several years before you know, potentially devised by other people throughout their bureaucracy or the previous manager. So when I think of this whole issue, I always, my mind always just goes to Rickover, who always said, we need long tenures, permanent duty. If something goes wrong in the nuclear submarines, everyone in Congress and everyone in the department knows who to blame, and I'm the responsible person. So I would like you to just talk a little bit about workforce reform and what you what your thinking is there but also react to what i said about what do you think about just like longer tenure permanent positions we've been pushing for longer tenured program managers for about 30 years now and it, it seems to stay in the in the area of two and a half to three years average tenure for program managers no matter how much we push on it and that's because program managers tend to be military and military have to rotate it just as a matter of life if they don't rotate then they don't promote and they don't stay so we were sort of up against the, the way the military personnel system works there. We actually had some studies that show that, that tenure of program managers doesn't seem to have much, make much of a difference in terms of program outcomes, to which my response is, when you're comparing a two and a half year average to a three and a quarter year average, it doesn't make much difference, but maybe that's because what you really want to compare it to is a tenure average, and we don't have any examples of tenure averages to compare it to. So there are a number of different workforce changes that I think we need to make. We need to be focused on how we get different high-tech capabilities into the DOD portfolio. We have cyber and AI and software development, things like that, where people are focused. And we need to be much more alert to how we can bring in those kind of capabilities on the military side, on the civilian side, and on the contractor side in a way that we don't right now. But with regard to specifically this program manager issue and program manager tenure, I think we should be thinking, and, and Congress has given the department more flexibility, I think we should be thinking about different career tracks, which allow for the possibility of longer rotations and people who will say, remain a colonel for a longer period of time and that that's an okay thing to do and not viewed as being, you know, we have an upper out policy. And so we say, you've been, you've been in this grade, you've been passed over twice, you're, you're out now. We need to recognize that in some career fields, the result of that is we push people out right when they're at the peak of their expertise and right when we need them the most. And perhaps we can retailor that, and rejigger that so that we can keep people longer and keep them in positions longer. It takes not just changing the way we deal with acquisition, but changing the way we deal with the military personnel system. To me, that's a change at the margin because, and not a complete change, because again, I think you always need to recognize the value that the system is providing you and the value of that it provides you fresh blood, that it provides you constant rotation, that it exposes your leadership to different positions and different views, helps you build build leadership. The real values that the existing military 
promotion system provides, but we need to balance that and maybe tailor it and find some ways to create exceptions within it to allow talent to, to remain where we need it. Is the other half of that potentially getting program timelines down into like five years, even for major systems? You know, we definitely did this back in the 1950s, you know, the first nuclear submarine and aircraft carrier under five years, you know, the F-4 went through development in I think three years, 55 to 58. Do you think, you know, we're just kind of like in a different, we're at a higher level of complexity and these things just take longer? Like what's going on with that? Our period of time from, from milestone B to initial operational capability has been increasing, but increasingly slowly. And, and in terms of average is incredibly stable, going maybe from five years to six years up to seven years. That's just milestone B to IOC. That's not full program life. But that's that's sort of, if, if you're looking for a driver, the fact that it has been st- as that stable for that long through that many different periods of different administrations and different acquisition reforms and everything tells me that it's not something that is really highly susceptible to change. And that it's and, and to me, that's because the period of time you need for that milestone B to IOC is going to be driven more by engineering and development than it is by what your acquisition system is. And so if you want to build something that's incredibly complex and has never been built before, you're going to have to expect it to go through a development cycle that's going to take a fair amount of time. So I wanted to move on to a question here back on the workforce front. You know, in the last few years, we've seen this proliferation of chief, you know, XXX officer in government. So in the Department of Defense, we have now the chief management officer that used to be the deputy secretary of defense. Now it's its own position. We have chief software officer, information officer, chief information security officer and chief security officer and learning officer and data officer and others. So can you just talk about, you know, What's going on with this proliferation of chief officers within the department, and where do you see the kind of structure of that going? We've got a traditional structure in the department, which has the the different undersecretaries and then assistant secretaries serving under them. That is sort of a stovepipe structure, and what you find with this, with any stovepipe structure is inevitably it has seams and has things that cut across the seams. And so you try to figure out a way to deal with those seams. One way you deal with the seams is with cross-functional teams, which can be productive. Another way you deal with the seams is by creating a new stovepipe. So I need a stovepipe for data for, for a chief data officer, or I need a, a stovepipe for a chief information officer, and that's going to cut across everything. It's a legitimate problem where we need leadership in these areas, and it's hard to do in an organization that's as complex as the Department of Defense. I think that the idea of these positions is a good one, but it will always be a contradiction where you've got your existing stovepipes, and then you put in something that cuts across who's really in charge. And the problem of who's in charge, the more of these things you have, the more more of a problem it becomes. I actually think that one of the underrated ones is chief data officer, which was just created. I think it's tremendously important because I think we have underemphasized the the significance of data, the significance of, of lack of good data in the Department of Defense for a long, long time. And I think that this is an area um, where more attention is is well deserved. But just creating a chief data officer by itself isn't going to do it. It's, you know, unless it's resourced, what's the chief data officer going to do? And besides, the places you need data tend to be in stovepipes. So the chief data officer is going to be like a lot of these other CXOs, which is as the chief lobbyist for this area of work. And that's not unimportant, but it's not going to solve the problem in itself. So I guess my answer is this crossing of seams is a tremendously important issue. We haven't come up with a perfect answer for it, but it's good that we're still trying. Yeah, I like how you brought up the data. I was on a data initiative in the Department of Defense for many years, uh, the cost assessment data enterprise. And, you know, we had interactions with a lot of the other data systems. And those are just, you know, the data itself, the streams, what the contractors are submitting, everything. It's hard to understand how complex those data reporting streams are. And then how important they are for, you know, enabling decisions unless you've actually like lived it. I was going to say that goes back to the auditability story in my book where we go back to the, the SIM system, the corporate information system that the Bush administration, the first Bush administration tried to do in the late 80s and early 90s. And they wanted to basically uh, reinvent the department's information systems from the ground up because they assessed correctly that they were getting bad data on almost everything. 
and that the existing system simply wouldn't produce good data. But the problem was they wanted to do it in, in a textbook way, starting with what are my objectives? What data do I need to meet to those objectives? What systems do I need to build the data that I need to meet the objectives? Which is what we just said about PBBE and the way it might work. The problem was they had all these existing systems and those were the systems that people needed to live with in order to, to even get moderately good information that they could do their business. They didn't have money to build everything new and, and start from scratch at the same time they were maintaining their old system. So they started defunding old systems and they had nothing to replace them with. And then they found that the people that they went to to say, well, what are your objectives? What day do you meet to the, their objectives? Said, I'm completely over my head here. I, ca I can't start from a clean sheet of paper and tell you what data I need to run the Department of Defense. That's too hard. So it's, it's just a really hard problem. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, I just want to ask, you know, what questions or problems are at the top of your mind right now? Well, among the ones that we haven't talked about, I think that balance within the Department of Defense in terms of civilian control over the military first and in terms of the secretary's control over the department are an area which are going to need a lot of attention over the next few years. I think we've let the department drift um, and we've let individual stovepipes absorb an awful lot of authority at the expense of central authority and central control which also means at the expense of civilian authority and civilian control. And I think we're going to have to re-examine that and figure out where we are and where we want to be. I really like how you take a really historical approach to understanding the Department of Defense. And I think that's really valuable because, you know, when I was first started getting in the Pentagon, I was like, whoa, man, there's a lot of problems here, it seems like, but I have no idea what's going on. I just had to, like, for many years, just read all the history, just even get up to, like, speed at the basic level of trying to grasp my hands around what's really going on. And I, I still don't really have a clear idea of it, but, you know, with the civilian control thing, you know, there's a lot of discussion, even back from the late 40s and early 50s, the National Security Act and the amendments in 1949, Ferdinand Eberstadt and others had lots of really good and important ways of thinking about this. And I think as we look to the future of what does civilian control really look like, and a lot of these other questions, right, workforce, auditability, acquisition, there's a lot that we can learn from history. I think your book, again, Defense Management Reform, it's a good place for our audience to kind of start to get some of that flavor on these important topics. But are there any other reading recommendations that you would have, like acquisition or management reading list that you would provide for us? What are some of the big books that you think about? I wouldn't look to books other than mine, which I think everybody should read, of course. But I wouldn't look to books right now. I think there's some independent commissions and independent reviews that are coming out with some really good work. And so I've mentioned the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, I would mention the Defense Innovation Board's word on, on software acquisition. I would mention the National uh, Commission on National Service. Three big reports that have just come in that have a whole lot to chew on and think about in terms of the way the department works and the way the department should work. And I don't necessarily agree with all of their recommendations, but I think that those three groups have done a tremendous amount of work and marshaled real resources and come up with a lot for people to think about and, and, and work on over the next few years. His book is Defense Management Reform, How to Make the Pentagon Work Better and Cost Less. Peter Levine, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.